the important battle that must be won is in the Senate. There is no future for crypto in the U.S. if the Democrats hold the Senate. Really? At least not until 2030. I think if it's a clean sweep for the the, the Dems, then um, move your family. Wow, really? Move your family? Or or pick another industry, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not going to be doing crypto in the U.S. if, if it's a clean sweep from the, from the Democrats. You ser- like, wh- why? What do you think happens? What will 2024 have in store for crypto? That is the question on today's episode. And to answer that question, we brought on Ryan Selkis. He gives us his crypto theses for 2024. This is from a document that he publishes every year where he goes through, I think this one is 200 pages of all of his predictions, all of the themes, all of the narratives, all of the things he thinks will be in store for us in the following year. A few things we talk about in today's episode, the big investment themes in 2024, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all the other tokens down the market stack. Also, the people to watch, including Larry Fink. Ryan thinks he is about to get a lot more bullish on crypto. How we defeat Elizabeth Warren as well. We talk about that and why Ryan thinks Barry Silbert will make a comeback. I think he called him in this episode undefeated. We also talk about the future of stable coins. Ryan is particularly bullish on Coinbase's layer two. Uh, it's called Base. Of course, we talk about that. And finally, we conclude with some policy takes. And, and Ryan has some particularly spicy takes here. Just me on today's episode. David is out today. He is ice climbing. True story. Guys, we're going to get right to our episode with Ryan Selkis. But before we do, I want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible, including our number one recommended crypto exchange for 2023 and 2024. That's Kraken. Go create an account. Kraken knows crypto. Kraken's been in the crypto game for over a decade. And as one of the largest and most trusted exchanges in the industry, Kraken is on the journey with all of us to see what crypto can be. Human history is a story of progress. It's part of us, hardwired. We're designed to seek change everywhere, to improve, to strive. And if anything can be improved, why not finance? Crypto is a financial system designed with the modern world in mind. Instant permissionless, and 24-7. It's not perfect, and nothing ever will be perfect. But crypto is a world-changing technology at a time when the world needs it the most. That's the Kraken mission, to accelerate the global adoption of cryptocurrency so that you and the rest of the world can achieve financial freedom and inclusion. Head on over to kraken.com slash bankless to see what crypto can be. Not investment advice, crypto trading involves risk of loss. Cryptocurrency services are provided to U.S. and U.S. territory customers by Payward Ventures, Inc., PVI, doing business as Kraken. Arbitrum is the leading Ethereum scaling solution that is home to hundreds of decentralized centralized applications. Arbitrum's technology allows you to interact with Ethereum at scale with low fees and faster transactions. Arbitrum has the leading DeFi ecosystem, strong infrastructure options, flourishing NFTs, and is quickly becoming the Web3 gaming hub. Explore the ecosystem at portal.arbitrum.io. Are you looking to permissionlessly launch your own Arbitrum Orbit chain? Arbitrum Orbit allows anyone to utilize Arbitrum's secure scaling technology to build your own Orbit chain, giving you access to interoperable, customizable permissions with dedicated through Whether you're a developer, an enterprise, or a user, Arbitrum Orbit lets you take your project to new heights. All of these technologies leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum. Experience Web3 development the way it was always meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Visit Arbitrum.io and get your journey started in one of the largest Ethereum communities. 
MetaMask Portfolio is your one-stop shop to navigate the world of DeFi. And now bridging seamlessly across networks doesn't have to be so daunting anymore. With competitive rates and convenient routes, MetaMask Portfolio's bridge feature lets you easily move your tokens from chain to chain using popular layer one and layer two networks. And all you have to do is select the network you want to bridge from and where you want your tokens to go. From there, MetaMask vets and curates the different bridging platforms to find the most decentralized, accessible, and reliable bridges for you. To tap into the hottest opportunities in crypto, you need to be able to plug into a variety of networks and nobody makes that easier than MetaMask Portfolio. Instead of searching endlessly through the world of bridge options, click the bridge button on your MetaMask extension or head over to metamask.io slash portfolio to get started. Bankless Nation, our next guest, needs no introduction because we do this every freaking year. We have Ryan Selkis. He is the founder and CEO of Masari, which is a crypto analytics firm and media company helping bring clarity to the crypto space. And every year he brings for us toward the end of the year, his theses going into next year. Today, we are ending 2023, actually not today, but this month sometime, and we're entering 2024. So it is time to take a look at Ryan's predictions, his theses going into 2024. Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm tired, man. This is you tired. We were just talking off camera. This is the longest one yet. Um, and, uh, and it's still under review. Uh, we didn't even get you the full draft yet, so I appreciate you doing this. But I'm, I'm yeah, about, no, we're looking at we're looking at I'm half of it today. I'm 102 sections into the 105 overall. So uh, 102 the, sections. The last the last three, I think I'm going to finish tonight, and then we'll, we'll go through about a week or, or so of edits, and and then ship it out right before the holidays. So, uh, Bankless Nation, this is a 200-page document, of course, that we are, we're going to try to distill half of this into a, an hour or so long episode, which is an absolutely monumental task. But of course, we'll have a link so that you can download the full document and, and get your digest. This is some fantastic holiday reading for you uh, if you're interested in, in kind of a recap of 2023 and, and the things going into 2024. I, I'm wondering, before we get into kind of uh, the, the various sections here, and we, we've got a number that we're going to cover, if you could give us sort Sort of a recap of the year. So you you start with this welcome letter. The carnage of the t- past twelve months in crypto have been brutal for all of us. We've grinded through bankruptcies, lawsuits, layoffs, turnovers, and a general malaise that comes with a bad hangover after a big party. That's uh, very much how I felt. Uh, we ended, you know, twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three. I suppose for for much of the year, what was part of that? How would you recap the year that was twenty twenty three, and how are we positioned going into twenty twenty four at the highest level? I feel good about heading into next year uh, and where we are. We have uh, a number of tailwinds that I think should be uh, pretty encouraging for most of us. There is a a weird backdrop in the private markets, like the private venture markets, where there's still pretty significant dislocations um, in terms of prior valuations. And um, and I, I do worry that um, some of the non-token affiliated companies um, might be getting a little bit of a false sense of security or or, or mm-hmm. this might be a false start um in terms of like resetting you know certain levels of optimism particularly you know for for folks that have been around for a while um but that's mostly a function of the both the public software and kind of private venture market still being you know relatively icy um i think seed stage feels good series a feels good um, obviously, the token markets are coming back. There's different narratives that that are starting to get people excited. And then at the very highest level, um, you know, Bitcoin has uh, has a number of tailwinds. We'll talk about Ethereum as well as we always do, um, and kind of bat that around. But um, but I think the Bitcoin spot ETF tailwind is probably the biggest um, kind of wealth generator or potential wealth 
generator for you know folks within the the crypto ecosystem, and that usually has a trickle down effect. So um, we're in this like little bit of a weird transition phase, but all things are generally uh, trending po uh, positive, including policy uh, right now. Um, might not feel like it, uh, but I can I can certainly share some thoughts on on why I think um, things are slowly coming back um, to a good spot. Maybe this is the dark before the dawn there. Right, Ryan, would you call this a, a bull market? Are we in a bull? Well, technically, we've been on a bull market all year. I mean, you know, um, Bitcoin's up, you know, 150%, you know, Ethereum's uh, almost 2x uh, off the lows. Uh, Solana and some of the other, um, you know, highest performing, you know, big protocols or mid cap protocols are, are, are up five, you know, in some cases, even upwards of 10x. So I, I certainly think um, uh, just, it, it's it's almost undoubtedly and, and indisputably a bull market from the bottom. Um, but there is still, you know, a ton of uh, recursive investment, you know, within the industry, right? So when you think about infrastructure companies, when you think about, you know, um, where we are from an ecosystem health standpoint, a lot of our long-term growth and kind of really hitting the the, the potential for for crypto and, and all these emerging protocols, it's going to come from real-world adoption and kind of crossing this chasm either with users or in the case of um, of DeFi and financial instruments with Wall Street. And that's where we're starting. We're, we're still in a bit of a, a halting pattern. I would say it's probably more acute um, on the DeFi side of things um, than it is for you know just Bitcoin on kind of the, the the currency front or some of the other emerging applications like you know DPIN and um, uh, and, and non financial or non explicitly financial applications. But um, it, uh, it it feels like we could be on the cusp of uh, of a really fun year. It, it really just depends on how a couple of things break. So going into twenty twenty four, do you have an analog for what? year 2024 will be most like is this like you know if we if we go back to the previous um yeah. market cycle is this 2021 or is it 2020 or you can even go back further than that is it, it 2016 it, what do you think it, 2024 it feels, will be it feels like 2020 and a six month you know delay or or, okay. or or so because um what we're seeing right now in the solana ecosystem in particular um and and yeah, the, this hot ball of money trade and and you know all the enthusiasm for um, different you know alternative L1s or or you know farmable ecosystems. It, it's very reminiscent of of DeFi summer in 2020. Yeah, and of course you know DeFi summer 2020 was was basically like rocketing off the um, COVID crisis lows in March um, to you know a new high or like right right after the the last Bitcoin halving. So it, it does feel a little bit like. Uh, I'd say mid 2020 in some respects. I always try to shy away from the the different calendar year uh, comparisons, just because I think that there really are a series of overlapping hype cycles and, and kind of rhythms to the market. On the one hand, you've got yeah you know, the Bitcoin having uh, cycle, which you know for whatever coincidental you know reason has has, has just happened to work in, in pretty nice uh, nice tight four year cycles. And then others, um, you're kind of analogizing to previous like historical events. Um, so for Solana, it's you know the the crash to eighty dollars of ETH and and all the you know kind of nuclear um, events that happened around um, you know consensus being very you know distressed at one point uh, in, in that low. You can kind of analogize that a little bit to um, you know what happened at FTX and 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 some of the supporting infrastructure around Solana and, and kind of their resurgence. Um, but uh, yeah, I I I think 2020 um, feels like the vibes. 
depending on what part of 2020 you look at, though, that could be very scary because, you know, it's uh, it was a shit show earlier in the year. And um, and obviously, you know, I, I think there are some things, um, you know, politically and, and kind of socially, culturally that um, that, that probably cause uh, some uh, some related fears, even if it's not quite a, a pandemic that locks everybody down in their houses for for two or three months. Yeah, interesting. I mean, 2024 in itself uh, will be an election year, so I'm sure we'll get to that. But but let's set this up. Okay, so we've got five sections we want to touch on, and we're only going to be able to cover the, the highlights. Um, we've got the investment trends for 2024. We've got top people to watch. We've got some products to use, the top products to use, top crypto monies, talk a little bit about money, and then uh, some policy trends. We'll, we'll end with that. But let's start with the investment trends for 2024. You've listed 10 here. Let's start with King Bitcoin here. So what's the investment case for Bitcoin going into 2024? Who who is buying? Are these some of the, you know, standard crypto natives? Are we we have net new buyers? How would you describe a Bitcoin uh, as a, an investment trend for 2024? I know you mentioned the spot Bitcoin ETF. Maybe it starts there. Is there more to it than that? I think there's uh, a bit more to it than that, um, but that is probably the most important. Um, and again, this this does depend on an actual Bitcoin ETF getting approved um, in January, like many people expect, including myself. I think that's a high probability event. Um, if it doesn't happen, it, it it would be both a surprise and you know uh, potentially introducing a a pretty um, big variable into the mix. We don't really know how the market will will react, but I'd imagine it would be net you know unfavorable compared to what the year could look like. Um, but the thing with the Bitcoin ETF is, um, you know, Mike Novogratz and um, uh, a, a number of other you know, investors that, that we had at, at, at Mainnet, Scaramucci said the same thing. Ralph Powell said the same thing. Um, the one thing about Wall Street is that assets are sold, not bought, right? Um, and you basically have a dozen or so of the largest institutions on Wall Street that are going to be falling over themselves and ruthlessly competing with each other on who can market Bitcoin harder to their investors. Is that uh, really something clients. they say, by the way, is assets are, are sold, not bought? That's something they say in Wall Street? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it, it, it makes sense, right? It's a very sales-oriented industry. And um, huh. and you, you, have, you have a situation where, um, yes, there are all these uh, there are all these kind of tailwinds, right? You know, could you see increasing adoption of Bitcoin in high inflation countries? And, you know, is, is you know, Malay um, in Argentina going to be the second Bitcoin president, right? That's kind of one thing in the background. You've got this um, four-year cycle of the having narrative. And, you know, you could argue whether that's overplayed because the inflation rate is so low now, so the marginal impact is muted, blah, blah, blah. Um, you, we don't really know. Um then there were smaller but really important changes like the the you know FASB financial accounting standards board their their treatment of bitcoin as a balance sheet asset has changed in a net favorable way where you know you don't have to list it as an intangible now you can actually market to market which is one of those boring but important structural changes that i think was an underappreciated tailwind for this year particularly and why in, is that in, important in by rising. the way the, the FASB well thing. you know essentially in the past you would only be able to take an impairment if your bitcoin you know, fell below it's fair market value. But the second that it appreciates above that, you can't market to market, right? So you're basically taking a loss in, in your financial statements if it dips below, but then you don't subsequently market back up um, uh, given the, the way that intangible assets are treated. So, you know, there, there's, a, I think, a, a ton of things like that that, um, that all add up. But, you know, those are 
every single data point, every single kind of narrative um, that I just mentioned, those are going to be the same things that are put on glossy investment materials um, from all these big you know, professional salesmen at, um, at the companies that are going to be falling over themselves to gather AUM for their new Bitcoin ETF products. And the only way that you really compete um, as, uh, as an ETF provider uh, is through distribution on the one hand and um, basically marketing, right? Customer acquisition on the other. Um, and there's no real difference between these spot ETFs. You can argue about, okay, one's going to be, you know, 50 basis points. One's going to be 75 basis points. Like who gives a shit, right? Like at the end of the day, um, whoever does the best job with marketing and distribution is going to amass the most assets under management, right? And if you follow that logic, then the incentive is for, people to, you know, go above and beyond in terms of like how they're marketing these things and the dollars spent um, are going to directly equate to net new AUM, which net new AUM for a financial product and an, and an ETF is, is new deposits, right? New, and this is the first time uh, Wall Street has had a product uh, in general. And yeah, I, I'm wondering- they've so, had a, a crypto product to sell. Right. And so you, you see basically the, the largest asset managers in the world just got their first crypto product and they're going to be pedal the metal in, in trying to sell it to the market and distribute it. And we've got some pretty big names here, right? I don't know. You know, I've, um, I've, I've heard from the analysts that, that generally ETFs are a power law winning game. There's like, you know, one big one and then there's a long tail of, of smaller ones and they're all competing to be the biggest one. And we have some of the biggest names here, don't we? We have BlackRock, we have, you know, Vanek and uh, I, I guess GBDC and Grayscale has some somewhat of a head start too. Do you have co any commentary on who, who you think the, the big winners will be besides maybe the price of Bitcoin through, through this uh, competitive uh, experience? You think, is, does BlackRock just always win these things? Do you have any takes? Well, I, I think Grayscale is probably going to be the big winner um, in some respects and it, it will lose in others. But in terms of um, long-term assets under management, Grayscale is going to be tough to displace even for someone like BlackRock. Um, I think there's a bit of a misconception um, about what an ETF approval or an uplisting does to Grayscale as a business um, based on the fact that they're going to have to lower fees and, and offer redemptions. Um, just because they will uh, begin to offer redemptions and, and have to lower fees does not mean that that business is going away overnight or everything's just going to go to, to BlackRock. And there's one very simple reason, taxes. Um, so, yeah, there, there are a number of uh, clients of Grayscales that are not, you know, I, I own GBTC shares. I'm not going to immediately redeem or transfer assets to another ETF product or even to Coinbase necessarily. Because that's, that's a tax event for you, right? And then, and then you have to trigger that taxable event and then have to pay basis. gains on it, right? So, yeah. you know, do I want to lose, you know, 30% of my um, of my you know, Bitcoin on a per share basis the, the second that I do that? Or... Do I want to uh, just hold it for 1% a year or whatever they reduce the fees to? Um, now, I do think the fees will be reduced for, for Grayscale, but it won't be sizable enough that it, you know, basically um, uh, hurts them net net. Um, I think you could see a scenario where, you know, they Grayscale cuts their fees by 50%. Maybe they lose, you know, 10%, 20% of their AUM, but I could also see them gaining. Um, because they already have a liquidity advantage and um, and they've already got this um, this kind of marketing engine in place and all the other products that um, that basically they could come out net ahead uh, with just some some modest price appreciation expectations next year. 
All right. So uh, the interesting question, of course, is whether the market has priced this in or not. It, it seems to be consensus that uh, we are going to get a spot coin BTF, some uh, ETF uh, sometime in Q1 of 2024. I don't know well, if you the, depart the from best, that consensus. The best but... prediction market here is the GBTC share price, right? Yeah, uh, and, which is closed watching, almost. And, wa- and watching that that um, that gap uh, that had grown to 50. Now, I think 50% was, was very much an overshoot based on the fact that um, those shares were being liquidated as, as kind of bad collateral assets during the credit crunch last year. But um, when you see it kind of slow and slowly, steadily tick up um, from, you know, 50 percent to sub 10 percent now, last I checked, maybe it's changed a little bit. Um, that's probably the best prediction market that you're going to get um, in, uh, in in crypto for whether people anticipate that there will be an uplisting and a, and a spot Bitcoin ETF approval. Okay, so let's talk about uh, another investment trend prediction. So Ether and the World Computer. So currently the second largest asset, uh, about $225 billion or so, something like that. So about one-fourth the size of, of Bitcoin, but still a few, a, an order of magnitude larger than kind of the next crypto asset, I would say. What's, what's your prediction for uh, Ether? So uh, where does Ether stand going into 2024? It seems like the market has been fading Ether uh, maybe lately, particularly, there's been a big um, soul run up. I think in your report, you're, you're talking about Ether maybe being squeezed between Bitcoin and all of these alternative, super fast yeah. uh, layer ones. Uh, yeah, what's your take there? Um, so squeezed, you know, one way to put it, you know, I I, I think I wrote straddled, um, which may be slightly different, right? I, I don't think people are getting squeezed out of, of, of Ethereum, but um, I find it uh, maybe not as unlikely now uh as it was a few weeks ago just because the markets have have continued to move in one direction and at some point you'll you'll have a, a, a reversion to the mean potentially but um but uh ethereum out of out of l1s and kind of network tokens um ether as an asset still is around you know 60 plus percent of, of the market right um and if you believe that that uh network tokens are, are a winner take all market or, or you know, power law distribution market, right? Like search, right? Google versus Bing. Then maybe that's sustainable. And, and maybe what you're looking at is, you know, ETH BTC, right? So should Ether be, you know, X percentage of, of Bitcoin or or ultimately is is, is it going to catch up and, and maybe even flip because people think that there's more utility in, in the Ethereum network. I think the issue that, that ETH has is it's trying to be both um, ends of the straddle, right? So Bitcoin... It's very simple. It's a very easy meme. It's got all these narrative tailwinds. It's going to be the first out of the gate. You've got all the institutional investors who are not overthinking this, right? They're looking at the back of the napkin pitch that I just made, and they're all thinking the same thing and thinking that everybody else is going to think the same thing because, yeah, they understand it. The triple point, you know, asset thesis, right, or, or right, the ultrasound money, right, which I know you guys have, have advanced. Um that resonates, but it's not quite as simple, right? Uh, it's, you know, it, it does take a little bit of, of an unpacking and you can pull at different parts of that thread. You can pull on the money thread. Well, isn't everybody just kind of gravitating to Bitcoin? You know, El Salvador is not buying ETH that I know about. Javier Malay is not talking about ETH as far as I know. Um, you know, central banks aren't thinking about, you know, digital gold um, and naming ETH in the same part of the conversation. And by the way, you've got this other asset, Solana, that's really kind of coming up the curve and seems to be eating a lot of Ethereum's value. So now, now you're kind of taking questions from, from both sides. And I don't think that that's necessarily an indictment of, of Ethereum and the ro- whole roll-up ecosystem being fundamentally uh, unhealthy so much as it is 
a recognition that has been so dominant that it's tough to retain 60% market share unless you truly have a monopolistic business. And I don't think the block space is a winner take all or even winner take most market. I think that ultimately um, application builders and um, and and kind of other kind of para chains or you know, kind of parallel networks will ultimately go where they find the trade-offs between costs, security um, uh, for block space to be the most compelling. And by and large, that's going to make it very difficult to for for Ethereum to continue to compete on um, both availability and, and kind of cost um, on the one hand. And if they do, uh, if the ecosystem does get more and more scalable, then that drives down fees, right? Um, because there's more block space. And, and so the the supply and dyna- uh, demand dynamics change on that side too. So I, I've thought more about um, Ethereum historically uh, versus, you know, other alt L1s in general, almost more like um, Visa versus MasterCard versus, you know, Google versus Bing. And if that's the case, you know, yes, it will be tough for for Ethereum to to maintain its its market share. Um, but having said that, everything mean reverts, uh, and uh, and Solana and some of these kind of alternative assets have rallied so hard this year compared to uh, Ethereum. If I'm wrong, it will probably be because of mean reversion, not because uh, I necessarily think the long term thesis is wrong about this competitive positioning dynamic between the two. Do you think that Ether has any um, uh, tailwinds? Uh, of being sort of the second most institutionally adopted asset at all. So there is talk of uh, Ethereum getting its own ETF as well. And Mm -hmm. there's even talk that that could happen as early as as this summer is is one possibility. Mm -hmm. What do you think that does for Ether, if anything, this cycle? I'm not sure. Look at the Ethereum futures ETF. It didn't really do anything. Uh, I think the assets under management are, are negligible. I think um, I think it's in the you know eight figures. I don't even think they've hit nine figures collectively. You know, it's, it's sub hundred million dollars in um, in in the the futures ETF versus you know, what you saw in the first forty eight hours with the Bitcoin futures ETF. Very different. Um, so uh, I don't necessarily know that that is going to be a driver for Ethereum going forward. Um, but I do think that um, Ethereum benefits if uh, any of the other kind of core uh, narrative building blocks for Bitcoin or the other alts L1s, if they start to break down, right? So if you have another um, you know, kind of major uh, Solana outage or there's a, a series of hacks you know, that, that impact some of those early emerging DeFi uh, projects on, on Solana that have gotten a lot of heat recently, um, you know, basically a number of things could, could happen. Um, and I'm using Solana as a placeholder, you know, as, as kind of the second in line behind, behind Ethereum and that, you know, that, that hurts that community collectively on the one side and it helps Ethereum, you know, kind of net net. On the other hand, um, at some point we do have to start talking about Bitcoin's security model <laughs> and, uh, the having is a double-edged sword at this point, because now your network security is down to, uh, about point eight percent per year and and i think that there is a question as to what level is too low i don't know that 0.8 is too too low to secure a a trillion dollar network that's still you know uh tens of billions of dollars per year in um in security spending to the the mining community but it's certainly um it's certainly less compelling um than than it has been historically um and if you get down to you know 30 you know, 0.3% or 0.1% or, you know, whatever it is, at some point, either a fee market needs to develop or there's going to be a breakdown in, in Bitcoin's core security model. We, we so, are seeing some of that fee model with the uh, ordinals activity lately. Does that make you optimistic the, w- at all? 
I, yeah, and I, and I wrote about this during the report. I think that, you know, everybody, sh- you know, the, the irony is that everybody should be rooting for Udi and Eric and, and you know, ordinal <laughs> theory to kind of take hold. And instead, you've got, you know, the Bitcoin religious that that just, of course, they hate it because, you know, why not? Um, but, you know, one of the things that I wrote about um, uh, in, uh, in a later section at the investment trend section is, you know, Bitcoin essentially long term has four different options, right? Um, there's either going to be um, a fee market that develops and it'll be thanks to something like um, inscriptions and, and ordinals um, or, you know, other kind of Bitcoin layer two demand. You will ultimately uh, find people starting to agitate for um, a switch to proof of stake. Um uh, and this could potentially have, I mean, it sounds crazy now just based on where the kind of Bitcoin community is, but you can Im- imagine a scenario where Bitcoin gets financialized and, you know, half of the Bitcoin in the world uh, is ultimately managed, you know, uh, by, you know, regulated financial custodians on behalf of, you know, basically, you know, we've basically created digital gold and it's the same as, as the old um, uh, players and, and kind of incumbents that are are custodying these assets. You know, that makes it a little bit easier, you know, on margin to, to have that conversation at some point in the future. If, if the majority of the kind of economic voting interest says this network is no longer secure, we need to kind of fork into proof of stake. Third way would be... Um, you uh, re you, you think about the 21 million Bitcoin cap as um, a soft cap versus a hard cap, right? So in other words, there is some lower bound of security that we should be spending as a network. The fee market is not um, maturing. We must maintain proof of work as an alternative to proof of stake. Otherwise, what do we just build all this for? If you know the BlockRock and and, and three other banks can just make the the uh, ultimate you know kind of network decisions at scale. Um, that might be an alternative that people take seriously because they'll say, okay, half a percent annual inflation destroys the 21 million Bitcoin meme, but at the same time, it allows us to incentivize these third party um, energy intensive actors to secure the network. And that is a trade-off that we're willing to make because look, it's still better than gold, right? That's still better than any, any other kind of fiat currency. And there's kind of a natural equilibrium there. Um, and then option four is irrelevance. Uh, long term, because you can't secure a network with, you know, uh, negligible fees that's measured in the trillions. Um, the economic, the, the security model just doesn't work. So, I, you know, I, I put in the report, I think it's equal probability before those four. But the one that the one outcome and I think the one kind of future of the world that everybody should be rooting for if you're you know in the Bitcoin community is bucket one, which is that a fee, fee market materializes and it actually costs money to um, to, to generate um Bitcoin transactions on chain. And then um, you do push out some things like payments to, you know, layer twos. Um, I just wish that, you know, at some point in the last six years, we would have seen any sign of life in the lightning uh, market. Uh, but uh, but so far, uh, I, I just just don't think that anyone could should be, be 2024 could be the year of lightning, Ryan. Who, who knows? Uh, next year, <laughs> next year is always the year of lightning. Yeah, that's, I know. That's, that's always how it's been since I've been here anyway. You know, I, I will say the, the one thing that gives me pause um, is knowing that, you know, shit talking against lightning or, or, or even coming across this shit talking lightning um, does feel a little bit like betting against David Marcus um, and, and Lightspark. And, um, and there are some good teams that are building, you know, on lightning protocol. So I don't want to, I don't want to bet against David, but, um, but I do think that he might, um, sometimes this happens where you just get so jaded and so emotionally scarred from a traumatic experience that you can't possibly imagine, you know, uh, someone else figuring out what, what, you know, you didn't. And, um, and uh, if, 
LightSpark can't figure out, you know, how to how to make Lightning apps work. I think it'll mostly be because you know David went through the the Libra treatment at Facebook, mm -hmm. and just the full ire of the state, you know, going to block um, what they were trying to do with a with a private stablecoin, and then um, extrapolated that to a private stablecoin will never work, or these kind of you know private you know, public private partnerships will not work at scale. So you know, I need to build on Bitcoin, um, but. You know, who knows? That's that's it's, that'll it's be a good conversation about, for 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 me or you to have with him. At some well, point. certainly, certainly. I, 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 it's interesting those uh, those four kind of ways that that Bitcoin could handle the economic uh, chain security discussion, right? At least two of those feel like they could result in forks. Uh, and what's what's fairly interesting about that is uh, now we have an ETF, right? And so, how does Wall Street handle a fork? They, that could get very interesting, uh, I think, over time. But um, I guess one high level question for you: You don't think that this is the a chain security budget of uh, Bitcoin is not going to be a factor in 2024? We can continue to kick that can down the road, can we not? Uh, yeah. So, so I guess what I mean is not necessarily that it's going to be a factor and people need to worry about the security of the network, but at some points, if this is not addressed and um, people start to see this dwindling, um, you know, fee market or, 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 or issuance rate as a liability for long-term security, ultimately that begins to get priced in, but it gets priced in very slowly. And I think the way that that would get priced in is net in favor of something like Ethereum ah, right? or, okay. or another or another asset. So, so yeah. yeah, so so kind of, you know, close, close in the loop on the first part of the conversation. I think, you know, to the extent that Ethereum outperforms in like the medium term versus Bitcoin in particular, you know, that 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 will probably be one of the factors. Well, tell me about uh, the liquid field then. So we talked about Bitcoin, we talked about uh, Ethereum. So but there's a long tail of other assets, but just uh, you put this so, so people are uh, kind of recognizing Bitcoin, ETH and dollar backed stable coins actually represent 75% of the total crypto market cap. That's about 1.6 trillion. Um, this won't always be the case, you say. And yet you also say a little bit later in this section, for your friends and family, I wouldn't recommend investing in anything outside of maybe five or so crypto assets. And by mm -hmm. the way, you're not telling us the other three, although I'd be curious to ask you what, what the other three are. So what, what do you think about this long well, tail? I kind of, I kind of outed myself in the disclosure section at the back. Uh, yeah, the back I of, see. Maybe we'll get to that cause, too. Cause Solana was, was uh, the third, but I, I won't, I won't mention the other two. And mostly that's not because I, I feel uncomfortable sharing them, but I just don't want to get yelled at. So, you know, now if anyone from any community, you know, tells me that, you know, I should be taking their asset more seriously, I can just fib to them and say that they were, they were part of the other two in private. But, um, uh, but I think the, the, the point about, um, well, number one, it's simplicity, right? So the, the, the reason to keep things simple is not that other assets won't outperform um, Bitcoin and Ethereum, but because for someone that's just looking to get exposure to crypto as an asset class, uh, definitionally, if you were just at Bitcoin 2014 or whatever the conference was that Vitalik introduced, you know, uh, Ethereum at, you would have captured 75% of the market upside since 2014, right? So you would have captured that 100x, you know, plus if you just invested in the Ethereum ICO and, um, uh, and Bitcoin back then. Uh, and I, I always joke with folks um, that, like, if you knew the early, like, Ethereum crowd, yeah, there's a reason I missed the ICO, right? You can know too much <laughs> about this industry and not keep things simple um, because it was like the island of misfit toys. Um, and, you know, uh, fortunately, I got in, you know, uh, while well, it was still relatively early, but not as early and, and as dysfunctionally as, as, as maybe the first couple of years were. Um, 
But uh, I, I think you know, that's going to hold true for a while, right? So you know, maybe there's a handful of assets that make up the index that you want to uh, exposure to, just so all of your eggs aren't explicitly in one basket being Bitcoin or, or two baskets being Bitcoin and Ethereum or vice versa. Um, but you know, it, there's, there probably is, um, I think, heavy bias towards being invested in the names that have a lot of, of, of uh, name recognition just for the, you know, the 70 IQ play on crypto on the one hand. The other reason not to get um, uh, overly excited about any individual asset or basket of assets, on the other hand, is um, one, it's just really expensive and time consuming to kind of parse through the, the other $300 billion worth of you know, economically you know, interesting or not so interesting assets. Um, but also most of them are, are relatively high inflation, especially compared to um, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum. And I use inflation um, a little bit liberally just so that we can compare these on an apples to apples basis. You know, and I'd include things like insider sales uh, from some of the big foundations and labs and, and kind of founder stakes. Um, that are prevalent in, in many of the other assets, you know, three through 10,000, right? So you're, um, the price that you're looking at and the market cap that you're looking at, um, that's not on a fully diluted basis necessarily for the rest of the asset class. So you're basically trying to, you know, not only compete against the top assets in the industry and in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum, but you're also trying to beat the dilutive impact of, of all this net additional issuance, whether through the form of, of new tokens that are being um, issued through high staking rates um, or um, new assets that are hitting the market through token unlocks or, or kind of early team vesting schedules. Okay. So what's what's your take on, uh, you got a section here on private crypto markets. And I think a lot of people who are unaccredited investors, they, they don't have any funds inside of a, a fund structure or a VC of any type. They, they get a little bit of FOMO, right? Because yeah. they see the VCs participating in these uh, early stage deals. But um, you've called the private markets before losing alpha. Uh, yeah. What's your take on, on private um, investors, so the VCs of the world and, and the funds of the world, are they outperforming like a, an index weighted, uh, you know, top 10 or top uh, 25 in crypto? Or do you think it's a losing game there? I think if you looked at the aggregate investments in private crypto funds, hedge funds, venture, all strategies, uh, at the time they were raised and the time that they were deployed, and you took all of those assets and you invested in Bitcoin Ethereum alone, it wouldn't even be close, right? It would not even be close. Bitcoin, Bitcoin and Ethereum would weigh they would just absolutely fucking destroy um, every, <laughs> every, 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 you know, the well, That feels good for retail. That's the good for retail. Now, but, but my point is, I don't think that is true universally, but of course it's not going to be, right? You're always going to have a couple of outliers in that field that do very well, right? So Multicoin comes to mind betting early and, and really going all in on, on Solana, right? So credit to them. Um, but, you know, is that 100% skill? Is that a confluence of factors, skill and luck? Is it, you know, whatever, just, you know, throw a dart and you're going to have, you know, if you throw a dart 100 times at a dartboard blindfolded, you know, one time out of 100, you, you might hit the, the bullseye um, regardless of, of your skill level. I'm not saying that about Multicoin um, in particular, but, um, but rather... Uh, in general, you're always going to have outliers on either side. But if you aggregate all of those dollar flows, they're net going to probably underperform the liquid market. And um, you know, for for illustration of this, you can you can even go back to look at you know Coinbase's um, Series B with Andreessen Horowitz. So it was in the fall of um, 
2013 that they closed that. I think Bitcoin was trading around $100, $120 probably when it closed. Um, and uh, if you look at their valuation, I think you know, Coinbase was around $140 million post money, if, if, if my memory serves me correctly. So you know, Coinbase is a public company now, it's $35 billion. Um, so yeah, just do the quick math there. Yeah, they've they've done very well. It's about a 300x, but um, you know, it also 300x from $100, um, 400x actually, um, is um, is the king, right? So so even even Coinbase, right? The most successful. I, I think really the only um, company to arguably you know outperform the market uh, at, at that scale has been uh, Binance, right? Um, but remains to be seen whether that's something that that will persist long term. But um, that is to say, it is exceptional and rare. Um, and the odds of you picking that as an investor and going all in on that thesis as an investor, um, such that it outweighs you know, the, the relative underperformance of all of your other dogs, it's, it's you know probably not going to be worth it. Having said that, you know I always was of the opinion that um, folks that were heavily invested in Bitcoin and Ethereum should be investing in uh, critical infrastructure because without the critical infrastructure, their bigger positions in the liquid tokens are not going to hit their potential, right? So you do need those those picks and shovels. And as these um, as these big networks uh, hit the scale that they're at, you know, the odds of another hundred x in Bitcoin. Um, if we have a hundred x in Bitcoin, then society has fallen, right? So, um, yeah, that's not a good thing because that means that we've experienced uh, hyperinflation events in the in the U.S. dollar. Um, you can get hundred x, you know, investments. You can get venture scale, you know, investments. I think much more easily today. Um, than maybe historically. So it'll be interesting to see how some of those funds uh, perform. But the reality is, um, uh, and Nick Tomino uh, from from One Confirmation, who's at a, a, a tremendously performing, well performing fund. I even think that um, uh, that you know he had kind of broken the, this down and the DPI for for their kind of early funds. How did it do relative to the liquid markets? It was I think neck and neck, maybe slightly slightly under. Um, but credit to them, they were transparent about it. And I think one of the reasons they were transparent is you know basically to say, you know, we've done very well by venture standards, um, and you know even we you know having done well by venture standards, you know face face a tall order now performing the, the liquid crypto markets. Um, the last thing I'll say there is because of that dynamic, people will see that historical performance of the private. And, and kind of infrastructure-related venture markets. And I do think that you'll see many more um, liquid investors begin to deploy against strategies, um, especially if we see market momentum picking back up. Uh, they'll, they'll want access to some of these liquid tokens because you can just as easily see if you avoided leverage and you avoided exchange blow-up risk, the funds that really did well and absolutely crushed were mostly private and they were mostly liquid. Yeah, it's a fascinating dynamic. So I, I guess um, for for bankless listeners, d don't um, don't get too obsessed with the FOMO of getting into that that hot VC firm because there's a lot of opportunities in the public markets. Um, and, and by the way, I pick on I pick on Multicoin because they've crushed, right? So like yes. they're you know, uh, well, you're and, picking and on them love, in a good way. Uh, well, I'm, 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 I'm picking and, on them in, the, in a good way, and and you know, uh, I I also think that no one is happier to troll people than uh, than Kyle. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I read his Twitter too. Um, all right, so let's talk about public markets from a different vantage point. And this is, you got a section here in investment trends, IPOs and M&As. Uh, what's going to happen? Are we going to get another crypto IPO? Do you think Circle's on that short list? Uh, we obviously have Coinbase. 
Uh, we have Galaxy out there, but there haven't been a ton of other large um, U.S. public companies in crypto. Do you think that changes in 2024? I would honestly, I mean, I'd be surprised um, by just about any other company with the exception maybe of um, uh, Circle coming out. Right. Uh, I think to get out in this environment uh, in the U.S. in particular, I'm not as familiar with the, the international public markets. But you know, for, for anyone to really get out in this environment in the U.S., you just need to have an exceptionally strong um, regulatory positioning and no one else fits the, the job description with the exception of Circle right now. Um, there are other great companies that, you know, I think operate the right way. They've never had a hack. They've had, you know, you know, minimal slaps on the wrist. You know, for uh, for for different issues, so Kraken is is one that comes to mind. But you know, Kraken has been in the crosshairs um, of the SEC twice over this year, right? One for their staking product that they settled and, and ultimately had to you know, kind of wind down in the U.S. and um, and now again more recently, they've they've kind of double dipped and, and come after them with the same um, t- types of facts that they, they alleged against Coinbase. So um, tough to take a company public in the U.S. in that environment with the when the SEC that would have to approve your listing um, is also you know, coming after you for uh, for for various reasons. So I, I think that's unlikely. Um, but I think Circle is, is one of the few that has both the numbers, um, the narrative and the regulatory positioning to, to support that. Um, you know, Jeremy um, had uh, had mentioned, uh, you know, this, earlier this fall when we spoke and this is public, you know, he said this on stage, but um, but that you know, the company had done uh, 800 million in revenue and, and about 200 in EBITDA, um, all of uh, last year and in the first six months of this year, they had matched that. And that's probably going to persist in this interest rate and, 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 and environment. So, um, yeah, just, just really well run. And, and, and so, you know, obviously, uh, circles, a company to watch and then, uh, you know, Jeremy and, and Dante, who's their head of strategy and their, their chief policy whisperer, uh, not just in the U S but kind of internationally, we're also part of the, you know, two, two of the people to watch as well. We'll get to some policy uh, later. That that would certainly be a pretty bullish thing for uh, stable coins if, if Circle, I think, went went public and got through that gauntlet. But let's turn to the people to watch going to 2024. Um, there, there's a number of folks on your list, but I, I want to start right at the top. Larry Fink and Kathy Wood. So Larry Fink, of course, uh, the CEO of BlackRock. Kathy Wood, uh, ARK Invest. Why are these names at the top of your list? Kathy's first. Arc is the first name on the calendar. So um, as uh, as the Arc ETF goes, so goes the rest of the industry, or so go the rest of the listings, I should say. So and, Larry and, Fink gets all the all the attention and oxygen, but if you just look at the calendar, literally, uh, Arc is is going to be first out of the gates. And this is literally tradfi coming to to crypto and, and that product to sell, as you were talking about earlier. Yep. Um, Let's talk about uh, Elizabeth Warren. So she made your list, Elizabeth Warren in Minions. Uh, I would say why why is she on the people to watch list? People don't understand why and how Senator Warren is as powerful as she is. And this took me a couple of years to learn and, and really is just a function of, of the, you know, just enormous amount of time and, and energy that I've spent, um, you know, in, in D.C., not just, you know, with policymakers, but I'd argue even more importantly with, with so many of the other policy leads at the different industry groups and, and in, at many of the other companies and projects. Um and uh, and these folks have, by and large, come into crypto from D.C., not the other way around. Um, and they understand that Warren is as powerful as she is, not because she passes bills, but because she places personnel in places of high importance. Uh, and in fact, there was a good Atlantic article about her probably six, seven years ago 
um, that essentially kind of walk through the logic, which is, you know, she never had any interest in, in going to Congress and like passing bills that were, you know, renaming post offices and stuff like that. Um, she explicitly said um, from day one, both, you know, explicitly and, and, and through her actions that she wanted to pull the country uh, to a more progressive direction. And she wanted to basically have an outsized inf influence on, on financial policy. So uh, much of your influence as a senator or congressman depends on your position uh, with respect to committees. And from day one, having come from Harvard and then the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which she was the first chair of, um, to uh, the Senate, uh, she always had a, a very strong bias towards financial services, and ultimately she ended up on the committee that oversees most of our financial regulators being Senate banking. When she ran for president in 2020, um, she didn't win. Uh, she fizzled out actually pretty quickly, but it was such a crowded field, uh, and she was otherwise uh, splitting the progressive vote so so closely with Bernie Sanders that um, there was you know, a bit of a, a devil's bargain between uh, the Biden campaign and uh, and Warren that in, in exchange for her support um she would have you know pretty pretty decently sized influence in financial policy in his administration and uh, that was both a horse trade that's an open secret um in in DC circles as well as a um, just logistical necessity because um uh, Biden even when he was vice president had much more of foreign policy bents than a kind of domestic policy bent so you know he did not necessarily have the staff on economic policy and financial policy to um, um, to begin with and, and and by aligning with Warren, it both helped him solidify the nomination and then ultimately, you know, she was able to place people in, in positions of high importance. So now if you look across the financial regulators that are um, across the board, uh, almost universally hostile to, to the industry, they are almost universally um, well aligned and, and in many cases have direct hooks with Warren and, and her either former staff or or just very longtime allies. So, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I won't I, I think keep people's families out of it, but, you know, Gensler, uh, he, he had a close family member that interned with Elizabeth Warren. Um, you know, the um, uh, the deputy director of the National Economic Council um, that has been our biggest um, obstacle and, and, and one of our uh, biggest critics within the Biden White House, uh, Bharat Ramamurthy. Uh, he was a former uh, Warren staffer. He he actually resigned in September. Who did they replace her with? Warren's current chief of staff, or then current oh. chief of staff, um, directly in the same position. So um, so there's pressure that she's able to exert from the financial regulators that she helps place senior most personnel in, and then directly from the White House in some cases, if you're talking about the NEC, um, where some of those phone calls ultimately came. Um, when people hear about the pressure that the White House was putting on, for instance, Maxine Waters in the other chamber, the House, not the Senate, um, to slow down or walk away from some of the bipartisan you know, bills that came out of the House this summer, those calls were coming from the White House. They were coming from staffers closely linked to Elizabeth Warren. And so you basically have this situation where she is, I've called her the shadow president of the economy. I don't think it's too far of a stretch um, because at the end of the day, you know, this is an administration um, uh, that is uh, very, well, I'll be diplomatic, I'll say it's very he heavily 
weighted towards autopilot mm. um, based on uh, <laughs> based, based on you know who's at the helm and, and kind of the age of the, yeah, the can I can I ask so, you a question here, Ryan? So so I, I think I have totally underestimated what you just said. So you know you look yeah. at it just from a votes perspective, you're like, oh, this is one senator, one of a hundred senators, one senator, one vote, and sure, she's more popular, more well known, so she's got a little bit of that. But when you paint the portrait of this is a senator that has massive influence in the executive branch, basically in terms of placing uh, key personnel and at indirectly Treasury. in the house as well. Yeah. Okay. So, so you got all that. Can, can I ask you just a, um, a meta question about Elizabeth Warren that I haven't been able to figure out? And I don't know if you have any answers to this. Why does Elizabeth Warren hate crypto so much? What progressives will tell you is that it's about financial um, stability, uh, consumer protection, and national security. Those are lies. Um, it is ultimately about control. Um, and the progressive establishment led by, you know, Senator Warren, I'd say when it comes to financial policy, what they really care about is, um, getting the federal government and, uh, and the, 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 the fed right through central bank digital currency, um, to have a greater direct impact on, um, and, and greater direct accessibility to everyday citizens, right? Um, so they think, by and large, that the um, that the private banking system, the the kind of you know, federal banking system, is is a mistake as currently incarnated because it's um, and and there is some truth to this, uh, you know, in, in terms of the privatization of gains and the socialization of losses that you see kind of throughout Wall Street historically, um, but. They still view um, that as a glitch in our system that, you know, ultimately needs to be brought to heel. And, and ultimately, we should be centralizing as much of the the, uh, the financial rails in the economy as possible. Um, you know, I, in theory, I don't think that that is a bad thing in terms of, you know, um, solving for, for some of the criticisms of, of the existing banking system. In practice, it's the most hellishly dystopian thing you can imagine because you're giving the federal government direct control over, you know, the, the financial banking and, and, and kind of where, wherewithal of, of you know, basically the entire citizenry. So um, we've already seen what happens uh, with deplatforming risks in social media. You know, we've we've seen it in, in overdrive with um, Operation Chokepoint, which people don't remember um, or, or either don't remember or weren't paying attention is not like a crypto bro conspiracy, right? This was a, this was an explicitly named fucking program in the Obama administration that the current FDIC chair, who was also then the, the Obama FDIC chair ran for payday lenders and firearms dealers and, and the like, basically to, to de-platform de uh, de them, debank them from the financial system um, extra legally because they were politically disfavored industries, right? They basically just ran Operation Chokepoint back. They don't call it Operation Chokepoint 2.0. We kind of came up with that moniker, but they're running the same playbook that they did with the explicitly named Operation Chokepoint a, a few years ago for, for some of those other, other politically disfavored industries. So I think that's um, it's incredibly dystopian to, to give the, the federal government that kind of control just because um, you, you know, we're, we're not governed by angels, right? And, and ultimately... Um, I think the same reasons that you and I are excited about crypto and, and kind of the decentralization of, 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 uh, of finance in general um, are the same reasons that I'd say, you know, 90 percent of Americans probably agree with us that the decentralization, at least of the banking system, is probably better than having like a central 
uh, central bank governed digital currency that's going to be able to direct debit or or, or credit your 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 financial uh, financial so, accounts so, as well. So what's fascinating about that account, and you know, maybe maybe that kind of clicks for for me and, and kind of rings true, is um, you're saying it's it's very ideological. Um, and it's about yes. about control, but I think somebody like Elizabeth Warren and that whole kind of anti-crypto army, they seem to think what they're doing is right the way, like, and and maybe it's more ideological than than I thought it was, and that would make sense because crypto as well is an ideological movement. I think on on yeah. kind of the the other side of things, but it's it's less about you know, is it less about like direct benefit and more about this is the way it should be, and we think we know best, and you know therefore we're we're pushing this out there. You know, I I think what it boils down to is you know I, I don't find myself particularly ideological. Um, I just look at history mm. and the history of, of centralizing the economy and, and the financial economy in particular is it's, I don't want to live in that country. <laughs> I don't want to live in that world. Right. So like just period, like it just because we don't um, decentralize power very, very well. Mm. And um, I have never really seen um I've never really seen compelling counterpoints, right? You know, to, to the extent that people use China as as kind of a modern example of uh, of you know uh, the CCP and, and its control of the economy, kind of shepherding it and in, into like this this kind of new dawn. Um, you know, one of the reasons that that um, their their model has been so successful is because they they kind of hot swap the back end of communist China uh, in the you know, 80s and 90s to cap to capitalism, right? So, um, I I think that. It is um, if if I heard a progressive case for further centralizing um, Wall Street and or disintermediating Wall Street and, and kind of being able to go directly to the Federal Reserve and, and kind of you know, further federalizing power um, that had any historical analogs that didn't end in um, national disintegration and or, or, or fascism, then um, then I would I would love to hear it. So maybe a listener here will be able to send me some links or counterexamples, but I've just never seen it. Um, and so until I, I see some uh, historical example that would disprove this, I, I tend to believe that um, this is one of the most evil things that could be foisted on uh, the American people and, and in general. And uh, the onus is on uh, their, their proponents to, to prove otherwise that this could be managed in a way that wouldn't be um, uh, you know, outright, you know, dystopian and, and kind of, fr frankly, con contrary to the uh, the Bill of Rights and, and all of our constitutional protections are kind of embedded in the in the operating system of the U.S. Right, and and I think that's really where where this fight boils down. Um, as you know, I've been outspoken on this and and at times impolite. Um, and one of the reasons that I'm impolite is because you know if if it comes to our constitutional protections, um, and people that I think are going to run roughshod over them because it's convenient or because that's just their political persuasion. Um, I think that we should tell them to fuck off. <laughs> there you go. Uh, uh, a challenge issue no. maybe to, uh, to Rowan Gray to come up with a, an alternative. If I, I know he's a regular I would listener. love to see it. <laughs> All right. So uh, we're still on the top 10 people to watch. We're going to get back to policy. Uh, hopefully we have some time at the end. So we don't have, time to cover uh, all of these names, but if there's one other person on this list or a group of people, Ryan, you think is worth highlighting, uh, maybe somebody that the crypto industry, I, I feel like Elizabeth Warren is maybe in the top uh, 10 people to watch, but like maybe keep an eye on that kind of yeah. uh, 
watching. Um, how about a more positive case? Who's somebody in the industry doing some good? Does a name come to mind here? Uh, well, I mean, I know we've talked about the ETFs a bit, um, but, uh, but you know, I, th I think Sun and Shine, uh, Mike, Mike Sun and Shine from Grayscale, you know, who I used to work with, uh, is on the list deservedly so. I mean, you know, we talked about the economics of that business. Grayscale, um, you know, was able to amass a massive, massive uh, AUM base that I don't think is going away, even if it does shrink slightly, which even that's arguable. Um, that business is going to be strong for, for a long time. And, and it's, it's yeah, really you know, led the charge in, in many respects, both in terms of um, institutional adoption. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but I mean, I, I would say Grayscale is responsible for three bubbles in one burst. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, 20, 2013, when when the product was originally formed, um, that was kind of the first institutional exposure that people could get through second market, you know, kind of amassing into this Bitcoin investment trust product. Um, obviously, the levered Grayscale trade uh, from the last cycle, where... Um, you know, uh, funds were kind of plowing in uh, Bitcoin, you know, using leverage and in, in, in terms of, you know, amassing more shares and then hoping to flip them on the open market. Yeah, you know, that that arguably led the, the late 2020 and kind of early 2021 ra rally until that uh, trend reverted. And then um, if you think that next year is, is you know, going to be a third bubble, then, then I'd argue that they're probably going to have a, a, a pretty meaningful part of um, driving that forward just based on their lawsuit victory against the SEC. So um, I think, uh, you know, that, uh, that company and, and kind of Sunny in, in particular is interesting to watch just because of the drama at the rest of the DCG family. Yeah, I was going right? to say, do you think he can get out from under that that gray cloud that seems to be hanging over the DCG empire? Well, you know, um, I know Rom, uh, you know, he, he's had the theory that, um, uh, you know, will the New York Attorney General's action against um, uh, Genesis DCG and then Barry in particular, you know, lead to an outcome where Grayscale has to spin out? Um and I, I mean, I make the point in the in the section about Sunny that I I, th I think that's overstated, um, but uh, the importance of of Grayscale and and I think the the uh, the steadiness of uh, of Sunny kind of atop yeah that part of the empire is is uh, is, is a pretty important uh, piece of the twenty twenty four story. I personally think that Barry is unkillable, um, <laughs> and uh, and I think people underestimate uh, underestimate his ability to navigate a, a bankruptcy crisis or, or really anything like this. And I'd, I'd give him uh, the advantage over Letitia James, you know, basically 99 times out of 100. But we'll oh, see. Fascinating. Very, very silver being unkillable. All right. We talked about people to watch. We talked about the top 10 uh, investment trends. For I even I even linked, by the way, and I don't know if you caught the link, um, but I even linked to like the Jesse Pinkman um, he can't keep that in like, you know, <laughs> basically for anyone that disagrees that with what's me, going on. Um, that's, that's, that's how I feel about, uh, any, anyone that, uh, that is surprised when, um, uh, when, when, when they walk away and, and this is ultimately resolved. And I think, I think this whole, um, uh, I think everything with Genesis probably does get resolved for one reason and one reason only because the number is going back up and there's mm. more money to go around. Right. I mean, I mean, even stake, the FTX you know. bank bankruptcy is is looking uh, kind of okay these days with yeah, the it, asset it, price exactly. going up. And, and and Genesis is um, small potatoes compared to that. You know, uh, for multiple reasons. One, I think in terms of the um, in terms of the, the divide that has to be bridged. But then, you know, two in terms of the earning power of Grayscale, and Grayscale's ability to earn revenue in Bitcoin and and crypto denominated terms, right, um, would would allow for um, some make holes that uh, that that otherwise wouldn't have been available at something like FTX as part of the, the remediation. So I, I think those are important factors that people are overlooking. Guys, we're going to get right back uh, with Ryan and we're going to talk about products, the crypto monies and some crypto policy going into 2024. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. 
Celo is the mobile-first, EVM-compatible, carbon-negative blockchain built for the real world. And now, something big is happening. Introducing the Celo Layer 2. It's a game-changing proposal that's going to bring Celo's rapidly growing ecosystem home to Ethereum. Vitalik has shared his excitement for the Celo Layer 2 on the Celo Forum, so has Ben Jones from Optimism. But why? The Celo Layer 2 will bring huge advantages, like a decentralized sequencer, off-chain data availability, and one-block finality. What does all that mean? Rock-solid security, a trustless bridge to Ethereum, and more real world use cases for Ethereum without compromise. And real world adoption is happening. Active addresses on Celo have grown over 500% in the last six months. With the Celo Layer 2, gas fees will stay low and you can even pay for gas using ERC20 tokens. But Celo is a community governed protocol. This means that Celo needs you to weigh in and make your voice heard. Join the conversation in the Celo forum. Follow at Celo.org on Twitter and visit Celo.org to shape the future of Ethereum. Are you launching a token? Is it already live? How are you managing the legal and tax for providing token awards for your team? Toku simplifies everything about managing token grant compensation, and you can get started with them for free. You'll have access to top-notch legal and tax support to handle the distribution and management of tokens for your team. Toku caters to every step in the process, from user-friendly legal templates for granting tokens to tracking vesting periods and calculating withholding taxes. Toku understands every grant structure, token purchase agreements, restricted token awards, restricted token units, token options, and all the other ones. Toku is already simplifying this today for leading companies like Protocol Labs, DYDX Foundation, Mina Foundation, and many more. You can learn more about how Toku can help you streamline your token management and get started for free. Visit Toku at toku.com bankless or click the link in the description below. Introducing USDV, a better type of stablecoin. Currently, billions of dollars in stablecoin yield each year are paid to Tether, Circle, and other central issuers of major stablecoins. But what if yield could be shared with the protocols that use it? Those protocols, in turn, can decide how to reward their users. USDV shares its yield with a community of apps and developers that mint it. Every USDV is backed one-to-one -one by US Treasury bills, which pay yield. This yield flows out to the community of USDV issuers, so your protocol or app can get paid for helping end users convert other stables into USDV. This works thanks to a breakthrough technology called Color Trace from Layer Zero. Without it, it was impossible to attribute users of a token with a specific issuer, but now we can. USDV is live on Ethereum, Optimism, Arbitrum, and other chains, and it's already available on over 20 exchanges such as Curve, BitGet, Velodrome, and Stargate. Start participating in the yield from treasury-backed stablecoins at bankless.com USDV. All right, Ryan, let's talk about uh, some of the products to use in 2024. The first one that makes the list is Tether on Tron. Okay, so this is uh, the Tether stablecoin, USDT on Tron. Why does that make your list of a top product for 2024? I, I just thought it was fascinating to look at the um, at the metric that I included as, as, as part of the visual, which is um, the number of addresses that hold $1,000 of USDC versus USDT. And essentially, um, it's about 200,000 wallets um, in, in, uh, in each case, at least it was at the beginning of the year. And then basically all of the net losses um, for USDC wallets in that, um, in that regard, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it was like 240 down to 200,000 um, wallets with that description for, for USDC. For USDT, Tether, uh, it was basically the inverse and, and they've, they've climbed all year, particularly on the back of the Silicon Valley bank crisis uh, in March. Um, that I think hurt um, Circle because they had their assets at SVB. So yeah, the, the great irony is that um, you know Circle probably needs 
better protection from the U.S. banks than than you know uh, the U.S. banks need protection from crypto. Um, Ridiculous. And um, and I think the um, I think Tether on Tron and Tether just in general, but I think you know Tron being the primary settlement platform, you know, in terms of the uh, availability in Latin America and Africa and Southeast Asia. Um, it really is, you know, I'd say probably the the most widely used killer killer app for crypto, um, particularly when it comes to financial inclusion um, that we've seen to date. So I did not have that on my bingo card um, for uh, for the most widely used and, and most important apps that we have. But I, I do think um, I do think right now it's probably the case. I mean, it's just a uh, Tron usage of USDT is just uh, slightly trailing Ethereum at this point, which is uh, in- incredibly impressive. Uh, I thought it was higher. It may be higher too uh, by the yeah. time we're recording this. Actually, we had uh, Matt Siegel on from Van Eck and he had kind of a, a contrary prediction I want to run by you. He actually thinks that USDC will flip in Tether uh, in 2024. And the reason I think his, his unstated reason is basically treasury goes after USDT in a big way and tries to squash it out and snuff it out and shut it down. Um, what's, what's your take on that? Well, I wrote about this later. I don't blame you if you didn't actually read all 90 pages of the first <laughs> half, cause it's a beast. Um, and I didn't give you a whole lot of turnaround time, but, um, I, um, I could be very wrong about this, but I just have a hunch that it's all kayfabe. Um, you're familiar with this concept in, in wrestling, right? Kayfabe and, and no, 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 no. Uh, refresh me. I think generally people should be uh, should be aware of this when it comes to politics uh, in in general. Kayfabe is essentially um, the like it's all it's all somewhat scripted, right? Um, so like all the anger, all of the um, all of what's happening in public, right? It's it's performative, but in private, you know, the, the reality is very different. And um, and I think if you if you look at Tether. Like this is a perfect, you know, situation where where you could see like real, like crypto kayfabe between the U.S. government and, and a project like Tether. Tether is this, you know, one of the largest buyers of U.S. Treasuries. Um, they work very, very cooperatively with the U.S. government when it comes to things like AML KYC, and the alternatives um, for the U.S. government are basically shut it down and lose a surveillance partner, um, or um, to you know, let it go on and and you know keep an eye on it and and make sure that you know it doesn't get too big or out of control. But you know, otherwise, you know, we'll sell them some treasuries. We'll keep an eye on it, and ultimately, you know, if if they want to survive and not go to jail, then you know they'll they'll play by our rules. And I I think I I find it very difficult to believe that the U.S. government wouldn't have um, found a way at this point to go after uh, Tether. Unless there was that dynamic in the backgrounds, um, and you know, frankly, I think that's that's kind of good for all parties, but especially for Tether, uh, which uh, literally uh, and figuratively just prints money um, as as a company since they sweep you know uh, the the interest on those treasuries uh, basically to the company versus um, to anyone that's. So you think you all know, the talk uh, from treasury is like performance art? Like they really don't, you know, they're just uh, talking a big game, but when it comes down to it, they're they're happy that Tether exists and they'll, they'll be happy to let them to continue to exist. So yeah, because because ultimately I think they'll be able to seize those assets yeah. a little bit more easily. Right. Like, you know, it, it's different from Binance in the sense that, um, you know, uh, Binance, well, it, it's very, it's similar in some, in some cases, right. I mean, the, um, if Binance gets a big fine. There's, um, there is a deal that's ultimately cut in terms of, um, what, 
uh, CZ is going to have to cop to, and and you know, we'll see what a sentencing is. But but you know, uh, obviously, you know, it could be uh, radically reduced versus you know what what you might expect, you know, given the magnitude of what was accused of of Binance. Um, but the trade off there is, you know, now the U.S. government is a little bit more closely tied to to Binance, the platform, and and now has better surveillance capabilities. Um, so to the extent that you see anything, you know, at Tether. Um, that is similar in terms of the, the government kind of cracking down on them or going after them. I, I would imagine it's probably not dissimilar from the Binance situation and that Tether is, a, is, is basically allowed to exist. Maybe they pay some sort of fine, even in the, in the case that the government really comes after them. But um, the U.S. government just finds a way to tighten its, its surveillance hooks uh, into the project. And the, um, the more they play up the... Um, the wild west nature of of tether and, and and the more they you know fight them in public and and kind of you know engage in kayfabe here then um uh the more credible it looks right and and the more people will continue to use this asset that can then be fully surveilled and and you know um and and the uh that liquidity and, and all that demand doesn't just flow to something that is you know even more difficult for for them to wrap their their heads around from a sanction standpoint um or just a, a general uh, surveillance standpoint so bankless listeners there are a number of other products on ryan's list uh celestia fire dancer farcaster lido ccip from uh, link uh, project guardian um there's two layer twos on this list we haven't talked about layer twos up yeah. to this point maybe let's talk about base then from from coinbase so why yeah. is that on your list as a you know product to watch and use um, well, I think um, just generally Coinbase had a monster year. Um, they stayed out of trouble. They've been on the right side of uh, and, and a really good relative positioning in all these legal battles. Um, they're the net uh, benefactor, or, or sorry, beneficiary of um, uh, the drama at, at Binance on the one hand, um, the uh, concentration of, of kind of custodial assets on the other. When uh, you look at all the ETF providers that have been uh, choosing Coinbase as their surveillance sharing partner and ultimately their custodian for these applications. Um, but I would actually say that one of the most interesting things about the businesses is, is all of the on-chain and, and kind of permissionless infrastructure they've been building. Um, I think the Coinbase wallet is um, is best in class right now, the MPC wallet. They've, uh, they've made a lot of investments in terms of the kind of embedded wallet as a service, um, uh, infrastructure that they've been uh, they've been promoting. I even joked, you know, with with Brian at Mainnet, like I I feel like I'm kissing his ass, and I'm usually a pretty tough critic, but I, I just think that they've been monsters um, this year from a performance standpoint. And they're almost back to break even, even even a pretty kind of hellish exchange backdrop. Hmm. Um, and I think base is kind of that last missing piece of the puzzle, right? Um, so they had the wallet, but base basically is the um the parallel chain that allows them to you know quote unquote you know kind of take an l2 or, or a um, an exchange affiliated blockchain network public without all of the baggage associated with bnb or you know kind of actually issuing or selling a token and then trying to prop up a, a, an ecosystem that way so they're basically able to use the optimism you know stack uh, they can be contributors to that community. It's highly performant to their specifications. They'll be able to build an ecosystem around it. Now the line's getting a little bit blurrier between the base uh, blockchain, Coinbase, the company, all the permissionless tools that they're building. And and, and you've got this kind of spectrum um, of lock-in across um, both centralized and decentralized uh, you know, alternatives for people getting into the crypto industry. So it's equal parts, I'd say, a way to you know continue to keep their users 
um, yeah, essentially have their cake and eat it too, kind of keep users locked into the, the Coinbase ecosystem. But I think it's also a really invaluable hedge to have um, given the positioning, you know, in the U.S. Uh, from a regulatory standpoint where they need some way to um, play in these frontier markets where, where historically they've been penalized by the uncertainty in the U.S. and not being able to, to fully engage, right? You, you know, they were handcuffed by the number of assets they could do versus an overseas exchange that would list everything, right? Um, and so I think that patience is ultimately, you know, getting rewarded in, in the, the stock price. But more importantly, I think it's um, it's just a really uh, excellent, you know, kind of addition that they made and, and kind of, you know, core asset that, that, that they have, not that they own it outright. Uh, maybe they'd object to my framing, but, but I think, you know, that affiliation and, and, you know, that, um, that outlet, uh, for some of this, you know, on-chain activity, um, to this L2 is, uh, is, is going to be pretty in invaluable for them moving forward. You think they're going to do, make a big play with USDC and stable coins on top of base as like a, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that was one of the big, uh, one of the big additions here is, is the ability to actually, you know, natively pay for transactions using USDC and, and not just, you know, another kind of roll up token, right? So, um, I, I do think, you know, there's, um, there's some 4D chess that's being played on base, and uh, and all of it is is kind of, you know, net good for users. If you look at, you know, kind of friend tech and the explosion that it had over the summer, that whole onboarding process, the the bridging on the Coinbase wallet uh, to base the um, the uh, the kind of scalability of 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 you know that uh, MVP, I think um, it, they they knocked it out of the park. Some of that was front tech, obviously, um, yeah, a good chunk of it was, but um, but I think that infrastructure that's been laid, you know, was 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 part of what powered it. So Ryan, you've got an entire section here on uh, crypto monies, and we've already you know touched upon a number of them that are listed here. We talked about Tether, we talked about uh, USDC, of course, we talked about Bitcoin, right? And um, when you look at USDC and Tether, and you look at Bitcoin, we see both ends of the spectrum. I think uh, Nick Carter calls Tether and USDC crypto dollars. I kind of like that term rather than stable coins. It's like kind of like a you know dollar backed um, IOU, if you will. And then we have our completely separate store of value assets uh, like Bitcoin. So we have both sides of those spectrums. Um, do you think we get anything else in between? I mean, every cycle, it seems like we try something with crypto collateralized stable coins. I mean, you could say Maker MakerDAO has been somewhat successful with DAI. That's still at play. It's not growing as fast as as maybe you know the bulls would have would have hoped. Uh, we tried some Algo stable coins last cycle that absolutely collapsed. What's new for us in the in the crypto money uh, thesis going to twenty twenty four? What do you what do you think will work? Honestly. You know, I'm I'm not sure. Um, I so I was interested in Terra in kind of mid 2020 because the because of the affiliation um, of Chia, the payment application, and and you know what I thought at the time. And again, again, there's a lot of like allegations that have been thrown around, but you know now. Uh, folks are saying that you know all those volumes were fake and you know that that application wasn't real or, or, or whatnot. But at the time, it seemed like you had a payment application that was useful with some underlying economic model that could ultimately you know kind of feed the algorithmic stablecoin and, and create at least something that wasn't just turtles all the way down um, in terms of a, a, a crypto collateralized money. And the, the issues and the blow up risk were well known from day one, but at least you had that kind of fee engine and that, you know, potential path to sus sustainability that was interesting. And I forget the market cap at the time, but I think it was, you know, it was, it was, it was low, right? It was like 
50, 60 million dollars, something like that. So it was, it was I think, uh, a reasonable bet to make. Um, uh, if you thought about, you know, could someone or could some model ultimately come to fruition that that figures out how you can bring a uh, under collateralized stablecoin to market um, that doesn't just collapse from day one under its own weight? Um, and I've kind of gotten I don't say jaded. I'm, I'm, I'm very I'm, I'm very skeptical. I feel like that was probably the closest we were going to get to running that experiment at scale. And I'm almost not sure whether it's worth running again. Um, because the risk will never disappear. And you saw how catastrophic the losses were from Terra getting to, you know, 40 billion or you know, whatever, whatever the high water mark was. Um, yeah, I could imagine the repercussions of an algorithmic stable coin that tweaks some of the model parameters and then got to 400 billion, right? Or four trillion, right now. Now you're now if that unwinds, you're collapsing the global economy. So, um, I, you know, I don't know. Like I, I think that there's, um, uh, I think there's some interesting plays that are are, are being contemplated right now. Um, I I know you know uh, a couple of folks have written about flat coins and um, and you know do you have stable coins that could you know potentially. Um, map to purchasing power uh versus like actual you know like us dollars i i i don't know i i think it's going to be extremely difficult and i think at some point you uh we're going to have to have cooperation with nation states when it comes to stable currencies that's not to say that they won't ultimately all fail or hyperinflate or, or at least at the very least inflate um and so you lose purchasing power over time but yeah, part of me kind of thinks like that's what Bitcoin's for, right? I, <laughs> so get, like, I get own that. Bit, like, own, own Bitcoin and then own your dollars, but like don't try to mix the two and then create another just catastrophic. That's kind of a barbell know, piece, type piece strategy. Like, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. We have our crypto native yeah. assets and then we have our. And, and again, I'm, I, I don't, I don't mean to, I don't mean to knock, you know, any of the, the entrepreneurs or any of the, the folks that are trying, you know, because maybe someone figures out a model that works, but I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's just, you know, this is actually one area where I'm probably more on the side of, you know, financial regulators uh, than, than people would, would think that I would be. I don't think that we should be fucking around with algorithmic stable coins anymore because, <laughs> you know, because the bigger they get, the riskier they are. Sure. Right? You can look at you could you could point to any algorithmic stable coin project right now and show me a thousand positive metrics. And the question is going to say, okay, well, what happens when this becomes a hundred million, right. when it becomes a billion, when it becomes 10, but like the more successful it is, the more pronounced the risks get and the higher the incentives, the greater the incentives are to break that. So, um, you know, I, um, fortunately, you know, uh, I've, I've gotten good at identifying top signals. So I, I didn't lose my entire, you know, uh, terror investment. I sold, uh, a good chunk when, when Mike Novogratz got his tattoo, cause I thought that was a top <laughs> signal, but, but that was talk, also a few talk months about before, that, tattoo that was Mike? also a few months before, before, you know, Do Kwan got, you know, really started to go off the rails publicly. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I, I kind of dodged a bullet there. Well, but, let know, me ask anyway. you another question about our crypto money. A missing, a missing feature is uh, privacy, but, um, do you think we're going to get that? I know you've long been a supporter of the Zcash uh, project. Um, but also, I mean, I feel like if there's one battle that feels somewhat unwinnable in the US, it's just like privacy. I mean, we've got tornado cash, smart contracts being being sanctioned. Do you think we can get privacy on our crypto monies, either at a you know crypto native store of value, yep. like Ether, some sort of set of smart contracts, uh, a layer two, something to give us private transactions? 
I think um, I think that what Zuko and and the kind of whole Zcash team did um, in terms of advancing like that whole field of cryptography um, is it, I, I think it's incredible and I think it's going to be you know it'll be a notable achievement um, for a long time. The original sin of Zcash was restarting from the same issuance schedule that Bitcoin did, which I don't think could be repeated. Right. Bitcoin was kind of a miraculous bootstrapping mechanism because it was first. Um, and and with Zcash, you had this instance where from the second they launched, it was a straight shot down. Right. So you could never you could never build excitement out of the early you know, base. You could never um, you know, really get people fully bought in and, and kind of fully endorsing or, or kind of you know, promoting this technology. And then you also had all of the headwinds. Um, from uh, from the regulatory state, but even today, if you look at Monero versus Zcash, you know Monero is is almost an order of magnitude bigger now, and part of that um, might be because uh, of the issuance schedule and, and kind of the way that they brought the token to market. But I think another big element is that maybe zk tech. Um, I would argue it probably is um, one of, if not kind of the best privacy preserving techs that we have, um, but is better instantiated at the um, uh, the application layer. Uh, for these networks and it is at the base layer for two reasons. One, not everything needs the same level of privacy. And so if you you know privatize the entire chain and you basically render um, all blockchain analytics obsolete, you have um, you have bigger problems even than um, AML KYC, right? You know, with, with Zcash, if everything was private by default and shielded transactions, it also at scale would have been very difficult to um, audit the supply long term right um and and you know that creates i think some some risks that that you know financial regulators um worldwide just you know would, would never allow for um but um i think the other uh element is the the flexibility that you get from having like quasi public quasi private um and like the spectrum of of privacy um is uh, probably going to be better for for almost all users right because you because think about think about the case of like an audit right yeah if you're a big bank, you can't just you can't showcase um, uh, or, or kind of tip your hand as to what you're doing with customer funds on chain, right? Because someone like Chainalysis could come in and they could review the wallet addresses and they could say, okay, this is J.P. Morgan and they have this customer set and and this company just reported earnings and so like maybe this address or like this this on chain movement is due to like you know this particular transaction, whatever. Um, you just can't have that. So. Um, I think the kind of hybrid privacy model is is probably something that is is going to work you know better at scale and and um, the paper that's uh, Vitalik uh, Amin Soleimani someone from Chainalysis a couple of uh, other academics you know came out with earlier this year privacy pools is kind of this you know I'd say bridge model that that might work. Um, Do you think the regulators go for that though, Ryan? That that's actually my bigger worry. I'm, I'm with you that privacy needs to be an app. And well, I think it's, it's I think it's gonna be a fight no matter what. I don't think they want crypto to exist. At least not this administration, right? This this financial administration doesn't want crypto to exist. So um, we already talked about that with with Elizabeth Warren. I think um, you know if if yeah, depending on what happens in the election next year, you know, the U.S. Does any administration is though, fork. right? Like just the financial surveillance, FinCEN, uh, well, OFAC, you know, North Korea hacking billions of of you know, like in DeFi. I, I'm worried that yeah. neither um, side of the spectrum actually wants crypto to be private. Well, we know one doesn't. Um, <laughs> we have our work cut out with the other, right? Okay. Uh, fringe. And, and, and I think, you know, the one thing I will say is um, 
uh, there are kind of two camps on both sides, right? It, it, it's kind of weird when it, when you think about privacy and um, um, and civil liberties. The old wing of the Democratic Party and like the old school progressives like Ron Wyden have much more in common with the new, uh, quote unquote, conservatives, the more libertarian conservatives um, that, uh, you know, are, are kind of pounding the table on on civil liberties and, and like, you know, uh, the Bank Secrecy Act as an overreach or, you know, but, but whatever, whatever the case may be. Right. Just trying to rein in like the, the surveillance you know, powers of the state. Um, you know, Ron Wyden fought for crypto in the nineties, um, in terms of like crypto being encryption. Right. And, and now I think you're starting to see crypto some more sentiments on the right. And then if you, if you kind of run it in reverse, right, like the, the Dick Cheney, um, uh, you know, Patriot Act school, uh, of, of the Republican wing and all the neocons, um, you know, now they're getting lamb lambasted in, um, in presidential debates, mm -hmm. right. Is like, you know, Dick Cheney is a slur in Republican debates now. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that neocon, you know, uh, establishment is, is essentially dead. I mean, I, I think that, um, that right now, probably 70% of the demand for, uh, or, or maybe even closer to 75%, um, in the Republican party, if you just look at kind of the leading candidates, you know, it's, it's for, I'd say like anti-neocons, right. Um, so kind of this, this new, more libertarian strand, uh, of the Republican party. So it's just kind of like freaky, um, uh, yo-yo of the two parties and, and kind of where they stand uh, from, a, you know, at least that form of progressive, uh, progressivism or, or kind of libertarianism, uh, civil liberties uh, in, in particular. So, um, yes, there are some uh, old school, like classical liberals that are on the right side of this, but uh, playing the percentages, it's it's very skewed in one direction. All right, so we got and you know that we got everybody some, knows that. we got some fights ahead. So so let, let's maybe talk about the the, the last piece of this, which is um, policy. So your, your, your takes on uh, policy and uh, you've got an entire section, I think it's like uh, 30 pages or so about policy trends for 2024. And I want to, you know, zoom out and, and get the context because we're not going to be able to cover all of this, but uh, you say this, I wrote this chapter for people who want an unfiltered perspective about what it will take for crypto to win in the U.S. Uh, that, that's really what I want to hear, an unfiltered perspective on what it will take for crypto to win in the U.S. I know you're based in the U.S. You know, Bankless is also, David and myself are based in the U.S., even though Bankless is, is also worldwide. And you've made the case very strongly, which I, which I agree on, uh, which is like, we have to fight it here, right? Because if the U.S. falls uh, and does not protect, protect uh, crypto, liber crypto liberties, then where do we go? Right? Do we? I mean, Europe may follow suit. We we have Mika, which you can weigh in on. Anyway, l let's get to this. What do you think? Give give me give Bankless listeners the unfiltered take on what it will take for um, crypto to win in the U.S. going into 2024 and, and beyond. I'll I'll start with a an interesting disclaimer, which is I'm probably not going to talk much about politics next year. I gave myself like a one year. I know people don't really believe me um, about this, but. Um, I wanted to give myself a year buffer between the election and um, uh, and and my political That's discourse because okay. I just I think it's going to be I, I think it's it's a losing battle. Um, I, I won't give you the, maybe over beers. I'll give you the, the the full anecdote. But literally, there was one conversation in particular um, that happened uh, like a week on either side of the um, of the one year mark before the November fifth election, and the change in attitude between this person like a week before and a week after in terms of like some of my rhetoric was, um, was, was like hilarious. And I was like, this is just kind of confirmed that like, this is way too 
spicy to, to be involved with um, as a, a sitting CEO in an election year, right? Like I'm not full-time politician. And, um, and, and so, you know, some of the things that I'm saying, I think about, you know, more through like an analyst lens um, and as someone who just kind of knows what we're going to need to do to win um, for the industry, even if it's you know, politically unpopular, because it is, it does skew in one direction uh, pretty, pretty decisively. Um, so that's one disclaimer. I'd say um, the, we already talked about um, Elizabeth Warren at length, and I think that's that's kind of the um, the thrust of where we should maybe uh, dovetail the conversation because this is actually a good segue from from the previous point. And this is a criticism that, that I hear sometimes. It's like, well, you know, if Trump is the Republican nominee, the Trump administration was no friend of crypto, right? Steve Mnuchin tried to ban. That's what I think of specifically. Self-hosted wallets. It was, on the way out, it was right? like January 2020, yeah. was it? And he that yeah. was one of his last acts, right? Almost got. Yeah, through. and and. and 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 there's some truth to that, and it's one of the reasons that um, uh, again, personnel is policy, and the this, the the reason that Elizabeth Warren is so effective is the same reason that we can actually make pretty significant strides as an industry um, on both sides, but particularly on the Republican side right now, and making sure that um, some of the voices that are elevated have like a strong libertarian or kind of civil liberties focus behind their their personal platforms, their their personal ethics, because those will ultimately be the people that are selected for another administration. If it is Trump and um, we get the same kind of Goldman Sachs, you know, uh, bankers that that we had, you know, in the last administration and the last however many administrations um, that just don't like this industry, you know, we get another Mnuchin or, you know, basically maybe he, he comes back, right, for instance, then, yeah, we don't, we're not really marginally improved. Um, or maybe we are marginally improved, but only marginally improved. There's nothing that's like really different about the, um, you know, whether it's the Biden administration or the, um, or the Trump administration, depending on who the personnel are. So, um, you know, for instance, I've been very supportive of Vivek Ramaswamy, um, as you, know, you probably know, and um, he has a small path um, to actually getting the nomination. Who knows what happens in 2024? Um, but just looking at the polls, it's a very narrow path. If Trump is out of the equation, he has a much greater path, you know, potential path. But um, if uh, if Trump you know, is in the conversation, he's probably going to be the nominee. And you want as many people like Vivek um, in that inner circle and in a position of influence as, as we can possibly have. Because the administration is just that. It is a large group of people with one person at the helm, but it matters who's in the room. And um, we didn't have that with, with Steve Mnuchin. So I think this proxy game is really important and we can actually learn from Elizabeth Warren in that regard. Um, so I won't spend too much time going on the, you know, with, I, I don't want our, our options to be um, what they are uh, for the presidency, but, you know, I don't get to pick. Um, the important battle that must be won is in the Senate. Um, there is no future for crypto in the U.S. if the Democrats hold the Senate. Really? Um, uh, at least not until 2030. So um, the good news is that the electoral map, uh, or 2029, effectively, right when you know uh, when when there would be you know another administration that's sworn in, and that's because um, Elizabeth Warren and Sherrod Brown, who's the chair of Senate Banking, will remain um, blockers on anything productive and essentially let any uh, financial regulator kind of run roughshod uh, over the industry in perpetuity um, if if they're in the oversight chairs um, and, and in that position of influence. 
So um, if you have a change in control in the Senate um, and it goes from you know, 5149 in favor of, of the Democrats to 5149 in the other direction, which is really only going to require one net seat since um, West Virginia's Joe Manchin uh, has decided he's not going to run for re-election. Um, that's the difference between, you know, who has the final say on financial regulators. Um, and so if it is a Biden re-election, then the the radicals will just get kicked back outright, right? Someone like Gary Gensel will, will never make it through again. Um, and uh, if it's a Trump administration, you're going to have um, more of like the Hester Purse camp uh, or someone like, you know, Christian Carlo or Brian Brooks, who served in the last administration uh, that, that sit in some of these positions uh, of authority. And that is a very material difference for for our prospects as an industry. So the so, Senate matters, and obviously, you know, presidential matters. Um, does does Congress? I would that, say, but I would say the I'd say the Senate is the most important, right? So okay. you know, we can we can survive, um, arguably. Um, <laughs> I, I have strong feelings on this personally, but you know, we're not going to have an impact on the presidential election. Um, uh, but I, I do think that we can survive uh, another. Uh, Biden administration, if um, if the Republicans have the Senate and um, and we have our ducks in a row when it comes to who are some of these you know uh, nominees for the financial administrators, um, but I think if it's a clean sweep for the the, the Dems, then um, uh, you know move your family. Wow, really? Move your family? Like ser- seriously? Like tell me about that. How much if if this is a pure well, I mean anti crypto I mean, Senate. We're, 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 or, or pick another industry, right? I mean, I'm I'm not going to be doing crypto in the U.S. if if it's a clean sweep from the from the Democrats. You see, like, why? What do you think happens? Like, I I, I think it's important to. I, I mean, you know, well, you just need to open your eyes, Ben. I mean, like, we're we're all seeing what's happening. I mean, this 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 hostility is not going to end, um, from uh from this party under his current leadership i mean yeah they've, they've already took worse? their hand i mean it's it's really bad now but like i i is there a world I, well, where I they mean, ban well, d5 well, I would, I would, and you know well, I, would, I would say i would say it it doesn't i think that's the wrong framing right what what it would be worse is no light at the end of the tunnel mm. um and i just i think that everybody will come to this conclusion naturally um when it gets to that point um if, if it gets to that point that you know, the us is just not uh for crypto business and and you already see this you know writ large every entrepreneur that's starting a new project you know uh, in, encourage them if they're going to touch anything related to crypto protocols and you have the ability to do it offshore you do it offshore um don't do it in the us um you're seeing this with all of the major um crypto companies um kind of hedging their bets expanding to europe expanding to dubai expanding to singapore um and um yeah this is this is the 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 worst kept secret you know with within the industry in the us um people are saying it privately now out loud but um but you know i've i've been saying it publicly since kind of mid 2021 i mean we're going to need some some political changes in order to you know just have a workable framework um, within the within the U.S. So basically, um, if if Democrats win the Senate and Democrats win uh, the presidential, you basically feel like it's lights out for for crypto in the U.S. for the next four years, at least for the industry. Yeah, because, because that I don't I don't see a I don't see a scenario where um, the you know, Democratic Party keeps the Senate 
and Sherrod Brown is not still the chair of the Senate Banking Committee. And Elizabeth Warren is not still in the catbird seat in terms of influence when it comes to crypto policy in Senate Banking, which are the oversight Do committees. Do we have any defense in that other branch of government, which is the court system? I mean, we've won a few things lately. Uh, yeah, it, it, but it, it'll it'll take years. I mean, that's the Hail Mary, right? Um, but, uh, you know, at that point, um, again, if it's a clean sweep in one direction, uh, yeah, these justices don't live forever either. So um, the the window of time where uh, there is a majority on the bench that would be sympathetic to you know crypto as an industry and 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 uh, you know at least leaning in that direction to to check the power of the administrative state, um, you know that's that's not permanent either. And if you extend that out another you know five years, we're just as likely to get. Uh, an unfavorable court ruling from on high as uh, as a as a favorite. Wow, I didn't know your takes were um, you know, like this uh, this raw. I guess you promised raw and unfiltered, but basically, like this is existential for like the twenty twenty four election is kind of existential. I, again, I know I know this is I know this is gonna you know this will probably rub some people the wrong way, and and you know maybe we'll even hear some policy folks kind of chirp. But just trust me, if if you hear anyone chirp, it's kayfabe. Go back to that <laughs> word. Um, you know this this yeah this is this is more or less known, and I'm looking at this just um as an analyst no bullshit yeah what the state of, of of affairs uh actually looks like and at some point you need to take people at their word i mean elizabeth warren when she ra when she's raising money i believe her now um, to raise and to to you know recruit an anti-crypto army and every single story that you hear um from uh, you know, kind of leaders, you know, on, on that side of the aisle, you know, in the Senate and, and basically in the positions of, of kind of greatest authority, um, it's all tying us to North Korea and money launders and tax evasion and blah, 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 blah. Like it's well, just a litany what really of, scared of accusations. Me, honestly, Ryan, was when yeah. uh, she got um, Jamie Dimon uh, saying the exact same thing in front of Congress yeah. last week, basically right. just saying, yeah, it's criminals. And, what is crypto for? you know, and, and, um, uh, you know, I, I saw all the memes about, you know, uh, JP Morgan and, and Jamie Dimon. I mean, I didn't really think too much of it. I, I thought the best interpretation was, you know, if you're Jamie Dimon, you've got the in-house team that's working on, you know, permissionless blockchains. And, you know, if it's uh, a Democratic run Senate yeah, I know, and, I know why he's and White the House, that, then, you know, if you're saying the right thing and you're not going to get a nasty <laughs> gram from Elizabeth Warren. And if it goes the other direction, yeah, they're still going to be the net beneficiary because, you know, yeah, the, the playing, rule, playing the rule both is, sides, classic. The rule is JP Morgan always wins. Okay. So, well, um, let's, uh, let's not leave folks here though. That's his responsibility as, as kind of the CEO of that company. Too. Let's not leave folks here. So what, what's on the flip side, let's say uh, crypto wins some, you know, crypto friendly uh, politicians in, in the Senate and also in, you know, like presidential what do you think? Is there a rosier picture here for the next four years? Look, I just I want to be very explicit about this and just reiterate, like there are some very uh, excellent leaders in D.C. They tend to be 20 years younger um, that understand the tech, that understand, you know, the potential for this um, technology, you know, across the board in terms of financial inclusion, in terms of um, uh, you know, the economic development. And these and, leaders you know, span just, the aisles, you would say. Yes. Uh, Gillibrand, uh, Ron Wyden, uh, on the, on the Senate side, you know, Richie Torres, Rokana, like there, there's a number of folks, right. Uh, in, in the house. So this is not a universal truth, but the reality is the folks that are in the most important seats on that side of the aisle, the senior most kind of committee leaders and the people that are ultimately going to be blockers on, on policy, like that's what's at stake, right? It's not whether there are good individuals on either side, but this is just kind of the dynamics that, you know, and, and, and power structures in play anyway. That's my final disclaimer there. 
I feel like I've I've had like six disclaimers. I'm still going to get a this I'm gonna get a <laughs> for this segment. So, um, but um, I think the um, on the in in the kind of long arc of history, uh, time is our friend. Crypto remains inevitable as a technology, and it's just a matter of where it blossoms first. Hmm. Right and and where it kind of you know, firmly takes root, and I think the economics, uh, the incentive structures of of crypto um, incentivize competition in much the same way that um, startups are incentivized to disrupt the incumbents. So it would not surprise me, and in fact, it's probably the expected outcome that um, a technology like crypto is going to be fully formed and um, and brought to you know, mass adoption by an economy not named the U.S. Um, for the sole reason that uh, the U.S. currently has the reserve currency, the dominant financial system, and the world's largest military. It's like innovator's dilemma um, type stuff. And so we, we've got an innovator's dilemma in that regard, right? So um, that would not surprise me, but um, I, uh, you know, I've got my family here and I, I, I like it here and, you know, um, What's that line from Office Space? Like, uh, why should I change my my name? He's the one that sucks, right? Like, like why why should why should why should I move? Like, they're the one that suck, uh, and 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 you know they just won't refuse to step aside, even though like so many of these folks are, you know, closer to um, uh, closer to the end of the line than uh, than than crypto is. That's for sure. But um, I think um, compounding. Uh, just if you zoom back, like zoom out a little bit and you just look at everything that's been developed, you know, crypto, Bitcoin didn't exist 15 years ago. Um, Ethereum didn't exist until 10 years ago, uh, even as a concept, right? Didn't launch until, you know, nine years ago. Uh, Solana was born five, six years ago as a concept. DeFi really didn't blow up until the summer of 2020. Uh, NFTs a year later, just you just go through the list, man. And, and it's just, um, one development after the other. Yes. There are these hype cycles. Yes. There are these big crashes. Yes. There's a ton of headwinds, um, from some very powerful people that don't like us right now, but eventually growth almost always wins out and you can be in a, a stick in the mud for as long as you want to, uh, be you're, you're either going to come along for the ride or you're going to get left behind. Um, and I, I think whether that happens to the U S or internationally, it, it, maybe it starts to happen internationally. Um, and then that old like Churchill saying uh, comes through, like you can always count on the U.S. to do the um, the right thing when all other options, options have been, been exhausted. exhausted. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's our, our saving grace um, in terms of you know, how, how crypto you know, comes to proliferate in the U.S. But I think there's multiple paths to get there. One, um, I didn't say it's over forever. I just said until 20, 2029 or, or so, depending on the outcome of this election. But that's not a permanent condition uh, either way, because this technology is not getting uninvented. There you go. Uh, what a great way to end it. Maybe maybe we'll wrap here. But but Ryan, I, I just want to ask you a personal question. So uh, what's still exciting to you about crypto? I, I've, I've seen you tweet before, like, you still love this industry. I'm, I'm assuming you still do. What's um, energy? I'm excited. Why are you still I'm, here, man? I'm I am I am literally excited about everything. So just you know, I'll end on another positive note. I mean, I think um, I think it's going to be a costly and, and and really intense battle next year. But um, I have never been more confident that you know we're going to move the needle politically. Um, and 
Uh, so I'd encourage people to you know, check out the, the resources that I linked to in the um, in the theses. I think the three to watch uh, are Coinbase is down with crypto uh, movement. Um, the Blockchain Association, Kristen, you know, has, has done a great job war, uh, uniting the warring tribes and and the Blockchain Association Summit uh, just had a who's who of speakers um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and then uh, Mike Carcase from Fairshake, uh, who's uh, who's running a super PAC, uh, I think he's going to. Uh, I think it's going to raise some eyebrows in the new year. So, um, so I think there's room to be uh, optimistic, and uh, and I certainly am. And I'm probably most excited. The, the thing I'm most excited about, Ryan, is I wrote the p- policy section first, knowing that I'm I, my work here is done. And now I'm going to spend <laughs> I'm going to spend 2024 being Not a political. complete degenerate and playing and playing with all the toys. Have fun. Have fun. And um and 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 literally just dog fooding and and, and power using our product. As a uh, as an investor and, and showing showcasing all the functionality. Yeah, what, so. a, what a great! I mean, and it's speaking of the long arc of history, thirteen years from magic internet money from zero all the way to uh, an ETF, and uh, I believe we'll get that in twenty twenty four. So crypto has come a long way. It's, we got a ways to go, but we've come uh, such a way. Ryan, thank you so much for putting out these theses. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you about this. Likewise. Thanks, Ryan. Bagless Nation, uh, action item. We've got uh, Brian's report right in the show notes. So go check that out. Read all of the pages. They are fantastic. Got to end with this. None of this has been financial advice, certainly not political advice. Uh, Crypto is risky. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. It's the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the Bagless journey. Thanks a lot. (laughs) 